I want to read a couple of passages uh, with you before I begin to speak. The first is Isaiah chapter 51. If you have Bibles with you, you might like to follow on. Isaiah 51, beginning at verse 17. This is Isaiah speaking to the people of Jerusalem about God and his judgment. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is no one to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, uh, the, uh, your Lord the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I'll put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground, like the street for them to pass over. Second reading is from Mark chapter 14. Gospel of Mark uh, chapter 14, beginning at verse 32. Jesus has just shared what we call the Last Supper with his disciples. And Jesus and his disciples go to a garden called Gethsemane. Verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to them, said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came to the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You might like to keep that passage open. It's uh, the passage we will be thinking about and exploring this morning. I think one of the most difficult parts of being human is that we all live at some level under the shadow of death. It affects us personally. It affects us among our family and friends. And it's probably the most harrowing and painful of human experiences. Because death is always tragic. My mum died about five years ago now. The person who gave me life lost her life. She'd been a very significant part of life like any mother is and 
she was gone. And there was a, a, a void, there was a, something missing as well as the pain. At her funeral, there were about 40 people gathered, family, friends, neighbours. But the other 7 billion people who live in this world were unaffected. They were oblivious. Any one death is very significant for a few people, but usually not for the rest of humanity. Jesus of Nazareth died. He was crucified outside Jerusalem around Passover time in the year 30 AD. A small crowd witnessed that. Some were scoffing, some were mourning. And at the time, it didn't seem very significant. It didn't make the news uh, in Rome. It didn't break the internet like Tay-Tay did recently. But Christianity makes much of this death of Jesus. What's the symbol of Christianity? What's behind me on the wall? It's a cross, isn't it? But stop and think for a minute, what is a cross? It's an instrument of execution. It's like an electric chair or a gallows. Now, we wear it as nice little silver things around our necks, don't we? We put them on our buildings, but what would it be like if you wore a gallows around your neck? Your friends would think you were pretty crazy or a little bit weird, wouldn't they? How has it become the symbol of Christianity? The day we, he died, we call Good Friday, not Tragic Friday. The Apostle Paul, an early Christian, said, May I never boast in anything except the cross of Jesus. A remarkable thing to say, because we've got lots of things to boast about, haven't we? Our 40 team wins again. Our kids are growing up and they do well. We boast about all sorts of things, but Paul says, I don't want to boast about anything except the tragic death of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we're looking at a passage just before Jesus' death that gives us a window, an open door into the heart of Jesus. What was he thinking? What was he going through? What motivated him as he went to his death? It was late the night before Jesus' crucifixion. He'd actually been this march towards Jerusalem for a few months now, from rural Galilee down to Jerusalem, the centre of Judaism. And three times on the way, he said to his disciples, I'm going to die. That's what awaits me. I'll be arrested, handed over, crucified, and on the third day, rise again. He just shared what we call the Last Supper. He'd said, eat this bread, remembering my broken body. Drink this. It's my blood poured out for many, a death for others. Remember this for the rest of your life forever. And then he leads his disciples into a garden to pray. And we see Jesus here like we never see him anywhere else. We see him sort of up close and personal, in the roar, if you like. In verse 33, it talks about Jesus being greatly distressed and troubled. Uh, the English translations sort of are a bit weak, actually. To be deeply distressed is the idea of being horror-struck. To be troubled has the sense of loathsome aversion. He recoils in horror as he contemplates what's coming. He, he talks about being in anguish to the point of death. He's in a cold sweat. He'd, he'd rather die than go through with what is coming his way. 
I don't know about you, but when I see somebody in this sort of state, I normally don't want to be there. I want to avert my eyes. I, I feel like I, I'm sort of, well, I, I'm prying into their private life. It's an invasion of their privacy. It's, when people are happy, it, it's easy, isn't it? Somebody wins an Olympic gold medal, what do we do? Well, we want the journalist to shove the microphone under their nose and say, how are you feeling? But when somebody's like this, I don't want to be there. It, it's, it's too awkward, it's too painful. Jesus seems to be falling apart and I don't want to watch. And it's so unexpected. It's, it's a surprise to find Jesus like this if you know anything about Jesus. Firstly, I think it's a surprise because we expect this raw anguish to be seen when he's actually crucified, when he's hanging on the cross, when he's going through all that pain of nails and bearing the weight. And that's when we expect to, the close-up. That's what the movies do, don't they? When they depict Jesus and his crucifixion, you get the zoom in, the close-up, the anguish on his face, the tears streaming down his eyes, the, the blood in his eyes. But actually, when you read Mark's account of Jesus' crucifixion, it's very matter-of-fact. The actual event is just three words, and they crucified him. It's sort of like from a distance. It's unemotional. We, we hear nothing of Jesus' emotions, but we see them here before he's crucified. Why here? I take it as because the physical pain of crucifixion is not what Jesus' death is about. Secondly, it's sort of unexpected because it's so different to the Jesus who strides the pages of history. If you read through Matthew or Mark or Luke or John and, and just try and get an impression of this Jesus, he's always in control. He's never out of control like this. Remember that time the disciples wake him up? They're out in a boat. A storm is howling. They think they're going to drown. Jesus is asleep. Can you believe it? And they shake him awake and say, Jesus, don't you care if we're going to perish? And does Jesus panic with them? No, he, he just sort of stands up in the boat and says, come on, shut up, you wind. Calm down. Like he, totally in control. But here he seems to be falling apart. Why? Just after this, he's before Pilate. He's on trial for his life. And again, he's composed, calm, and almost completely silent. And wouldn't you expect better of Jesus than this? Many people have faced death without falling apart, haven't they? Read in the New Testament, Paul and Silas were locked up in prison, unsure whether they'd be executed the next day. What are they doing? They're singing songs. Can you believe it? Uh, Socrates, one of the most famous deaths in history. Socrates was a great philosopher from Athens. He was sentenced to death. And he chose to drink hemlock to, to commit suicide. And in the hours leading up to that, he gathered all his sort of friends and disciples around and he waxed eloquent about his belief in the immortality of the soul and then calmly drank his hemlock, according to eyewitnesses. Why is Jesus so different? Is he actually under it all just a bit of a wimp? He can't cope. Well, I think we get some insight into what's going on from the prayer that Jesus prayed. He prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. Take or remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
He prays to God, not as God, but as Father. The normal way the Son of God has addressed his Father. Full of confidence. It's his Father who, will, who loves him, who will listen, who will provide for him. There's no distance, there's no resentment at all. And he prays to a powerful Father, a powerful God. Nothing is impossible to you. He could rescue Jesus from what is coming if he wants to. This God saved Daniel from the lion's den. He saved all sorts of people from terrible situations. If God doesn't answer his prayer, it's not because he can't, but because he won't. Not because he's unable, but because he's unwilling. And the crux of the prayer is this little phrase, take this cup from me. His request is to remove a cup, pants, for the impending hour to pass. Now Jesus describes what's coming as a cup. He's talking about the prospect of drinking some metaphoric cup, or at least the contents of the cup. And that causes him this distress, this anguish. And so he, pl- he prays, please, Father, take it away. But what is this cup? That, that's, that's really the crux of understanding what Jesus is talking about, what he's going through. It's clearly a very unpleasant thing to drink. They, they've just shared a cup at the Passover meal. This is so different to that. It's highly painful. And as you, if you read through the rest of the Bible in the Old Testament, it becomes very obvious what this cup is. It's an image that is used by God many times, one of which is in Isaiah 51, that first passage we read this morning, where he talks about the cup of the wrath of God. And in Isaiah 51, God speaks about Israel being forced to drink this cup to its dregs. Now, this cup is clearly no cup of Margaret River Chardonnay. It's foul-tasting. It's, it's bitter. In those days, the dregs of wine always had all sort of the mud in it as well. All the, the, when they trampled out the grapes and got other stuff into it, the dust and the mud and everything else, and it tasted terrible. You, you always avoided that last bit of the wine. Well, that's what Jesus is thinking about. It leaves you drunk and hungover. It has that vilest of tastes. It creates nausea in your stomach. Now, that's metaphoric. What's it actually about? Well, Israel drinking, or Judah drinking the cup of God's wrath, is about destruction and ruin, famine and sword, the worst possible treatment you could imagine. But it's called the cup of God's wrath. And that's what Jesus, that's what sends Jesus into this cold sweat. It's not the nails in his hands but the wrath of God, the righteous anger of God against humans because of what we've done. And many people recoil, and understandably, at this idea of the anger, the wrath of God. Isn't God a God of love? How do you fit that together? Surely if he loves us, he's not going to be angry. But wrath and anger are not the opposite of love. They're actually, in the right hands, an expression of love. Let me try and illustrate. A couple of months ago, a court case went through our our courts uh, about a a murder that happened in in December 2020. 
an intellectually disabled man called Alan Thomas, uh, Thomas uh, was on Queen's Park Railway Station in Perth waiting to catch his train uh, to do his normal job. He, it was fairly early in the morning and another man, and they didn't know each other, they had nothing to do with each other whatsoever, uh, also joined him on the platform. And for seemingly no reason at all, he brutally assaulted Alan, finally pushed him off the platform onto the tracks, unconscious, left him to be killed by a train. Now, the police were called before a train came. He was taken to hospital, but he died of his injuries very soon after. The judge who sentenced the perpetrator called it a callous and brutal murder. Now, that was real. That happened in our city. How are you feeling at the moment? I hope you're feeling at least distressed. But I suspect actually you're feeling angry, aren't you? Angry that somebody could treat a man like that. No reason, no motivation, just for fun. Bash them up and kill them. That's abhorrent, isn't it? If you're unmoved by that, there's something wrong with you, isn't there? If you don't feel some distress and anger, you've got no moral fibre, have you? The opposite of love is not wrath, but indifference. How does God feel about those sort of actions? Has he got less moral fibre than you? No, he feels anger and wrath. He loves the victim and therefore he can't help but be angry. How does God respond to the endless train of human evil, of murder and slander, of abuse and assault, of deceit and destruction? To human even evil piled up to the sky? God is rightly angry. He's slow to anger, yes, there's no temper tantrum, but he's angry. But Romans 2 pictures it as this sort of, we're, we're storing up wrath for ourselves for the day of God's wrath. Almost like every day we make a new deposit, another deposit, and it builds up and it builds up and it builds up until finally one day God's wrath will be expressed. And what Jesus recoils from is not the sadistic torture by Roman soldiers. It's, it's not the agony of physical death, but experiencing the full force of God's judgment on human evil. Drinking the cup of God's wrath stored up for centuries, for millennium. That is, of experiencing hell itself. He stares down the barrel of hell and he recoils in deep horror. He doesn't say, bring it on, but save me. He'd rather die than go through that. Once you see that, can you see that hell is real and hell should be avoided at all costs christians talking about hell is not some scare tactic i know parents sometimes do that to their kids it's just a scare tactic we we make you scared of the boogeyman or something somebody will grab you stranger danger but it's sometimes they're just playing games but this is no game this is real jesus shows us it's real by the way that he recoils from it and it tells us what's happening next day when Jesus is crucified. 
Because the primary action is not about Pilate or the Jewish leaders or the soldiers or the mockers. The action is actually between the Father and the Son. It's within God himself. The relationship between the Father and the Son, that perfect, loving, brilliant relationship from all eternity, is in some sense ruptured. The three hours of darkness as Jesus hangs on the cross dying ends with the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In those three hours, Jesus consciously experiences the built-up wrath of God against our evil. What killed Jesus was not crucifixion, but forsakenness. And what is God's answer to Jesus' prayer? Rescue me from this hour, from drinking the cup? Well, you probably know the answer. That deep, heartfelt, earnest prayer, take this cup from me, please spare me. Before we explore the answer properly, we need to note Jesus' rider on the request. Not what I will, but what you will. He rightly asks to be spared. But there's something even more important to Jesus than being spared. It's doing the will of his father. See, this is not some angry father forcing a reluctant son to go through hell. That would be child abuse. No, it's the father and the son wanting the same thing. There's no tension between the father and the son. They operate with one heart. If there's any tension, it's within the son himself. He wants to be spared and he doesn't want to be spared. He doesn't want to go through, it, through with it, but he wants to do the will of his father. Take this cup from me. And the father's answer is no. Everything is possible to you, but the father's answer is no. Within 12 hours, Jesus has been tried and condemned, crucified. 18 hours later, he's dead. He's drunk the cup to its dregs. The father says no to his own beloved son. Because there was no other way. There is no other way for us to be saved. See, this event that most people passed by without realising what was going on, this event is the crucial event in history because it addresses and solves humanity's greatest need to be rescued from God, from God's condemnation for our evil from God's sentence of death and hell forever. And it's Christ's death by which God rescues us from our terrible predicament. Well, we've been with, Gar uh, with Jesus in the garden. The door has been opened. We've, we've been privy to his most private, intimate moment, if you like, of his life. Intensely emotional moment. We've seen him up close and personal, distressed, and it's distressing. We've heard him pray, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. And we know what's going to happen, what did happen. He was condemned in a travesty of justice. He was crucified, pinned up, nailed to wood in physical agony. His body weight pulling on the nails, his muscles screaming, the birds circling. But Jesus knows that's not the core of what's happening. He will bear, he did bear the heavy load 
of human sin, of, of my sin and your sin, our evil and your evil. He was crushed by the hot wrath of a righteous and loving God against human evil piled up to the sky. And the prospect of that frightens the life out of him. That is worse than dying. And so he prays, spare me. And the father says, no. What could motivate a father to refuse his pleading son? Some of you are fathers, aren't you? Imagine your son, your daughter coming and pleading with you, with all their being, to help you, to spare you, to rescue you. You'd do it, wouldn't you? No matter what it took, no matter what it cost. But the father doesn't. What could motivate the son to go through with this? Not only to say, spare me, but your will be done, when he knows what that's going to mean for him. To face and suffer that magnitude of pain and suffering. Well, there's only one answer, isn't there? There's only one thing that makes sense of what happens in the garden and the next day. It's that God, Father and Son, loves us. Loved us and continues to love us. That's the only thing that makes sense. So Romans chapter 5, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, although you see that occasionally. Someone will give their life for somebody they love dearly, their, their spouse, their, their children. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. We've seen the heart of Jesus. If you ever doubt that God, Father and Son, has your good at heart, if you're one of those people who things happen around you and you just overthink it and you start to wonder and doubts assault you, sometimes it happens because of experiences we go through. Things come our way that we would prefer didn't come our way. And we wonder what God thinks of us. What is his attitude to us? Remember Jesus in the garden. Your will be done. That is Jesus. He decided of his own volition to go through with it for you and for me. The only explanation is a deep, genuine love for you and me. But there's a second thing that lies behind that. Do you see not just the love of Jesus and the Father, but do you now see the necessity of Jesus' death? See, if there was any other way that you or I could be okay with God, that somehow in the end it would turn out all right, apart from going through this, surely the Father would have said, yes, of course, I'll spare you. There must not be any other way. If you or your neighbour think, well, I think I'll be okay, I've, I've tried hard enough, or maybe I, I think I've got this personal arrangement on the side with God, everything will be honky-dory. The brute fact that Jesus died shows the lie of that. Jesus drank the cup. And the reality of that bluntly contradicts any such hope, doesn't it? I remember chatting to a couple of law students just out on the lawn at UWA one time and we were talking about God and it wasn't real and I shared something of my understanding of, of Jesus. And one of them said to me, well, that's, that's fine for you, but it, it's not for me. And I said to her, that makes Jesus look pretty stupid then, doesn't it? 
She was a bit taken aback and I, I guess I was a little bit rude at that point. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, Jesus thought he needed to die for you. You don't think he needed to die for you. You thought it was a waste of time, him giving his life. So either Jesus is stupid, he shouldn't have bothered, or you're stupid and you should bother. Which is it? I said, I don't know you very well, but my money is on Jesus not being stupid. Do you see the issue? If Jesus went through with this, then I need it. I desperately need it. You do. There is no future in thinking that because I've been a good Hindu or Muslim or atheist, that somehow will get me through. Do you see the blasphemy of saying, I've got the right to be and do what I like, and God ought to be okay with that. It doesn't make sense at all when we see Jesus in the garden, when we see the heart of Jesus, the emotion of Jesus as he faces what's coming, the conviction of Jesus that this is necessary, the Father's will, the Father's plan that he die for the sins of the world. It's crystal clear what my life deserves. I deserve hell. And it's crystal clear, just as clear, more clear, that God loves me. He's done what's necessary to save me from hell. And he's paid the total cost himself. Will you pray with me? Our Father God, we feel like we've walked on holy ground. We've been privy to things that we shouldn't see. Your Son in distress and agony, as he contemplates taking our evil on himself and bearing your wrath in our place. Thank you for saying no to his request to spare him. Thank you for doing your will, your son's will, of doing all that is necessary for us to be reconciled to you. We praise and thank you. Amen.